Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Data privacy is our topic today. What laws protect your data? What new bills are out there? Where's the legal landscape headed? This is a big topic. There is a lot to cover, but I think we have a fighting chance because I am joined today by two of the best known experts in the field. Lydia De La Torre is of counsel at Squire Patton Boggs for the next few minutes, where she works on privacy compliance, data protection, and cybersecurity law. She's also a professor at the Santa Clara University School of Law, where she has served as co-director of the school's data privacy certificate program. She has just been appointed to the inaugural board of the California Privacy Protection Agency. Congratulations on that. Uh, and a hat tip to the president pro tem of the California State Senate, Senator Tony Atkins, for appointing her. So I was jokingly saying to her a moment ago, you know, we're joined by privacy royalty on this show today. Alan Friel is a partner at Squire. He is deputy chair of the firm's data privacy and cybersecurity practice in the U.S. If uh, Lydia is royalty, I, uh, Alan still qualifies as nobility. He is also an adjunct professor at Loyola Marymount Law School of Law, and he teaches in a program at the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. He has decades of experience with digital media, intellectual property, and privacy and consumer protection law. Thank you both so much for being here. I think it's worth starting with basics. Um, I see a lot of discussions about privacy law that sort of dive in with a lot of assumptions already having been made. And I think before we dive into these laws and, and how they work, we should talk just a bit about what do we even mean when we say privacy law? So if you hear securities law, that means law that regulates securities. Privacy as a concept is a bit more abstract. So what is the stuff that privacy law regulates? You know, when you're online, who is getting what from you? When do they get it? Uh, what do they want to do with it? And, and how does privacy law deal with that? So what is the stuff that privacy regulates? It's a very simple question that doesn't really have a very simple answer. Um, there are really books written about what is it that is regulated for by privacy and what is it that is outside of the scope of privacy, but it's a very, very broad concept. So I think that one way to look at it is, is that idea of there's different aspects of what privacy regulates and you have like, you know, privacy in the context of your body and, and, and there you might be talking about, you know, um, your right to make decisions and make choices in regards to your pregnancy or, or many other things, right? And you have privacy maybe in the context of communications. And then you're talking about whether you have the ability to keep those communications private. But I think that fundamentally what is really being discussed right now in the public sphere and also in the political sphere is privacy as it connects with technology. Um, and, the, and the new ability that information technology has to not only record more information, but also remember that information basically forever. And um, I believe that that's where, you know, where we are seeing um, changes in legislation and where we are seeing um, also organizations trying to figure out how to 
comply with those changes. Alan, what do you think? Uh, well, you know, I think privacy has evolved differently uh, in Europe as it has in the U.S., uh, although uh, we're catching up with Europe. So, so here, you know, we've historically looked at privacy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the government. Um, although in the, the late 1800s, uh, future Supreme Court Justice Brandeis wrote a famous uh, Harvard Law Review article called The Right to Privacy, which sort of set the framework for, for privacy being a tort law. So in other words, a, a civil cause of action to establish uh, individual rights uh, outside of the realm of government intrusion. Um, the, the Europeans after World War II, having had some bad experiences with fascism and communism, uh, set privacy, however, as a fundamental human right. So at a much higher level um, than in the United States. Interestingly enough, a number of state constitutions like California um, did create a sort of essential uh, fundamental human right for privacy that, that applied in the private sphere as well as the public sphere. Um, but it's only been when, within the last few years uh, that, that, that there's, there's really been any legislation or, or governmental enforcement uh, uh, in that regard. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the Europeans um, uh, have, have developed the law um, in the 90s with the European uh, da Data Privacy Directive, and then uh, more recently for the GDPR, which I know we'll be talking about. Um, but here, we've really looked at it um, as um, a sectorial issue where there's certain types of, uh, of information that we deem to be so sensitive that it merits uh, a statutory framework to protect uh, the data subjects such as Papa for children or Gramlich Bliley for financial institutions or for healthcare uh, um, uh, providers. Um, and, and then we've had this very sort of basic approach to privacy, um, basically to treat it uh, uh, as we do any kind of commercial activity under section five of the Federal Trade Commission Act, which regulates um, unfair and deceptive practices. And so throughout the, uh, the, the 90s, while the Europeans were coming up with a very um, uh, uh, refined uh, privacy framework, uh, we basically came up with the concept that it's a material commercial activity, it needs to be disclosed, and if it's not accurately uh, and sufficiently disclosed, um, then it's deception by omission. So we kind of came up with this, like, tell people what you're doing, more transparency than choice. Um, and that's probably a good lead in to, to Lydia to tell us, you know, how, how, how uh, privacy developed more robustly in Europe during the 90s. Uh, and then we can catch up with where, how, we, how we got to where we are now in the U.S. with, with CCPA and, and, and other new laws. Yes, privacy seen more as a fundamental right in Europe. And I suppose 
we can then see it uh, being implemented in a concrete fashion, that concept in the privacy law that I think even people who don't follow privacy law have heard of, the general data privacy regulation. Uh, so yes, please, Lydia, tell us about that, that connection and what the GDPR does. So to answer that question, I think that I'm going to, you know, try to look at this from my European background perspective. I am a journey in Spain, I'm originally from Spain. So the European perspective is like Alan mentioned before, very different from the American perspective. But Europeans don't look at GDPR as a privacy law. The GDPR doesn't even mention the word privacy in its 80 plus pages. They look at GDPR as what they call a data protection law. And when you look at the frameworks, the constitutional frameworks in Europe, it's not correct across all countries, but in many countries, including my own, our constitutions recognize a right to privacy and a separate right to data protection. The way that I explain this to students is think about, for example, the U.S. and the right to self-protection versus the right to carry arms. We see them in the U.S. as two separate rights, but they are not really two separate rights in other jurisdictions. So they have this kind of different perspective. And the perspective comes exactly from where, um, the, the thing that Alan mentioned is just a different history. So when you look at the history of data protection, um, it really came about in the early 70s as a legal field. And it was a reaction to the rise of uh, um, automated data processing, to the, to the start of the use of computers just in all of these different um, areas in life. And at that time, Europe and the US looked at the same situation. We, the technological advances were happening on both sides of the pond, but they had really opposite reactions. The U.S. said, well, fine, you know, we'll have computers. It's great. We don't need to do anything about it. And if we find a problem, we'll fix it, which has created the legal framework that we have right now around automated data processing in the U.S. where you have specific laws. And Alan mentioned some of the fundamental ones, just regulating specific things, because at some point, Congress came to the conclusion that there was something that needed to change from a policy perspective in those areas. The Europeans in the 70s came to the opposite conclusion. They looked at computers, they looked at their history, and they said, well, this could be an issue. And we do not believe that we have existing legal frameworks that can address it. So we are going to create this new legal field that initially was called the you know, protection of individuals in the context of automated decision making. And then it was shortened to data protection. And this field is going to regulate how organizations that control automated processing equipment should handle the processing of personal data to ensure that these computers act in an ethical way or are used in an ethical way. And GDPR is the latest version of that framework. Uh, it really, you know, predates, um, Alan was mentioning the directive, but there are there are resolutions uh, from the 70s. There are laws. The first law on data protection that I saw is actually from the early 90s, and it was before the 1995 directive. The reason I'm mentioning this a little bit is because 
it's interesting to me that we are kind of in the same spot right now in the U.S. that we were in Europe in the 90s. The, right, the reason why the European Union came up with the 1995 Data Protection Directive is because they were looking at data protection laws being enacted in different member states, and that was creating friction in terms of commerce. And so the European Union decided that they needed to create some common requirements that apply across Europe to facilitate data, data transfers. So that's the whole background on where data protection comes from in Europe. And data protection has always, because it has that perspective of making computers ethical, it has always regulated personal data. If the data is personal in nature, is regulated by data protection law as opposed to private data. When you look, for example, the main privacy law in Europe is the e-privacy directive, the, the communications directive. That law regulates privacy in the context of communications. So any data that is sharing communications is by default deemed private and therefore protected by the e-privacy directive, regardless of whether the data is personal in nature or not. GDPR regulates personal data, the privacy re uh, directive regulates private data. Well, that's interesting. So, because when I think of, say, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which you know we can shift to next, I think of pretty specific things. You know, uh, web companies now have to build these infrastructures to deal with data, ensure that there's access or a right to delete or a right to opt out, and I think of it in terms of very specific. Um, rights that are given to website users. And then I try to look over at the GDPR, which I am far less uh, aware of its exact provisions. And I assume that they're pretty similar and that the CCPA sort of track the GDPR, but you're giving me a sense that maybe that's not true. And that even with the CCPA, the European structure is still much more built out and detailed. Well, I, I'm not sure that that is the case. I think it's just a different a different approach. So what we're doing right now, we're creating this, this I guess, version of privacy that we're calling privacy protection, right? And we are borrowing ideas from Europe. Europe has been very, very effective in exporting this, this legal framework, this idea of data protection law. It has been implemented in many, many countries in a way that is very, very similar to what they did in Europe. In the US, we're not quite doing that. So we're borrowing ideas, but we're still implementing it at the, under the umbrella of, of, of privacy. However, when you think about the U.S. and whether we have, you know, the same level of requirements, you shouldn't only consider privacy laws, right? Like we have many anti-discrimination laws that are outside of the context of privacy. Um, I think that we saw this come into play where we, you know, we were thinking about uh, collection of data in the context of COVID. You know, there were a lot of requirements in the U.S. that really didn't come from privacy laws. They came from, you know, our tradition of avoiding anti-discrimination uh, in the context of um, employment. And when they come together, they are very, you know, the 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 actual implementation is very similar to where the Europeans will get. It's just that we filter it through different uh, frameworks, if that makes sense. It does. And given that we have the GDPR on the books and that we have the CCPA on the books and that it is extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, to parcel up internet service 
certainly state by state. How, and, and now you're describing a, a wider ecosystem that basically governs privacy law, maybe not under the label of privacy. To what degree do you feel comfortable with the current landscape of regulation? Is there a degree to which even if I have a website in Minnesota, I'm already following a lot of these rules in order to have my site go live across the nation? Uh, or, or do you still feel there are major holes or um, that it's too much of a patchwork? You know, how do you feel about the landscape in the United States right now? Well, I think that Alan will have a really good perspective on this in terms of you know, how the industry is looking at implementing all of these different state requirements. Alan, what's, what has been your experience? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, we, we, we've really moved from a place of best practices to a place of, of uh, complying with, with uh, very defined regulatory requirements, right? So to, back to your, your sort of history lesson, Lydia, um, you know, it was in the 1970s while the Europeans were, were developing their framework uh, in the U.S., uh, we developed uh, what were known as the, the fair information uh, practice principles. Um, and, uh, and those were, were actually codified in 1974 um, as part of the Privacy Act, but that only applied to the government uh, and to, to federal contractors. Nonetheless, the Federal Trade Commission adopted the FIPS um, and, and basically said that this is what industry ought to be doing. 70s and the 80s and, and the 90s, if you weren't in a regulated space, you know, you had a privacy policy. Um, and, and unless you were, you were, you were saying something just, that was just inaccurate or, 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 or omitting something that was so material that it was essentially deception by omission, um, you weren't going to get in trouble um, the, unless you were in within one of these 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 um, narrowly regulated sectorial spaces that had its own uh, privacy regime. Um, uh, and then you started seeing the states step in, um, California leading the way, uh, and 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 this sort of first took took a, a route in it with websites. Um, and, and online uh, uh, digital media and online data practices. So CalOPPO is one of really the, the first um, broadly applied privacy laws. And for the most part, again, it was really a transparency law. You, you must have a privacy policy and it must explain what your data practices are. It applied only uh, online. Other states, uh, such as Nevada and Delaware, uh, copied it. Um, uh, and then um, we ended up uh, um, with sort of a, a, a public reaction to GDPR. When GDPR rolled out and everybody uh, started getting their notices um, from um, multinational companies, consumers thought, well, why can't I have this in, in the U.S.? Uh, and, and that led to a, uh, a potential ballot initiative, uh, which uh, was the forerunner of CCPA. And Lydia, you're, you were very, were and are very involved in, in sort of the, um, the genesis of CCPA. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what led to, to it and 
how we ended up with the legislative compromise that, that we have uh, uh, now. It does connect with this idea that we were talking about before, which is really the, right now what we're seeing in terms of regulatory interest, it is in the area of computers and technology and just how much of what we do is intermediated now by by um, automated data processing. So I think, I mean, the, the history is well known. In 2018, we had a ballot initiative um, that was set to be voted on. And um, there were aspects of that ballot initiative that I think were not as well thought as they should have been. And were set to create a, a number of um, challenges in terms of implementation. And, um, I've, and you know, I, I, I think that we should mention the person behind the ballot initiative, which is Alastair McTaggart and his organization, Californians for Consumer Privacy. So I'm kind of repeating here what I have heard him said multiple times. But um, my understanding is that he, um, you know, he put the ballot um, together and he you know, it was going to be voted on. And he just happened to know somebody who knew somebody in Sacramento and and they started a conversation as to whether there was a potential path for for him to withdraw the initiative uh, if Sacramento enacted something that was fundamentally aligned with the ballot initiative. And that's what ultimately happened. Um, they, they negotiated a deal. Uh, the ballot initiative was uh, withdrawn in 2018. And uh, CCPA was enacted within, I think, a week or two. It was really, really a short, a short period of time. There was a deadline as to when he could legally withdraw the initiative. So that that's what really set the timetable there. I was gonna. Uh, I, I will give a plug for a another a great podcast, the Data Protection Breakfast Club, and your colleague at Santa Clara, Professor Eric Goldman, is on there, and and he gets into this history and. Um, I will say they don't, they're, they're not the kindest to Alistair McTaggart. He, he's getting analogized to Darth Vader in that episode. Um, but uh, he, he's out front. I mean, I, he's willing to take the heat, certainly. Um, and one right. thing I was curious about with this history, so it leads into these um, protection from breach, I think is pretty hard to argue with. I think everybody wants their data protected and that's wonderful. Um, then there's also rights to access your data. And I think everybody in theory and as a general principle gets behind, you should know what data companies have on you. And it goes on and on, you know, a right to delete data, a right to opt out of data collection. And I was curious, how are these specific rights uh, actually working out in practice? Because as Alan mentioned, you know, the GDPR leads to these um, disclosures that websites give you. And uh, there are complaints that that's sort of performative, that they're not widely used, but what's going on with that? Are they being used? Are they being utilized? Is that an effective way to protect privacy or is, should we be shifting or looking at a different model? So as I said before, the, what we're seeing right now is we're borrowing concepts from, from that European legal framework, data protection law. And what data protection law fundamentally did and what CCPA fundamentally does is it shifts power. It takes power away from 
industry and it places it in the hand of individuals. And you could argue that that power can be, you know, used in a way that is positive or misused. Um, that's, you know, your, you know, depending on your specific um, set of ideas, um, you 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 might come to different conclusions. And Eric Oman, somebody who has actually been a mentor to me, I know him really well. Alan knows him really well as well. And he's yet to find a law that regulates privacy in the private sector that he will agree with. And he's consistent on that across the board. He hates GDPR as much as he hates GCPA. But it is true that, you know, we we have seen a lot of opposition to CCPA beyond some of the people who, right, for a long time have opposed privacy law in the private sector. And I think it is because it is different. Um, it is not GDPR. So some of the bigger players in the industry, I think, have come to the conclusion that if they have to deal with GDPR in Europe and in so many other jurisdictions, they might as well just roll it out for for everybody. And, and uh, Microsoft made that move here in the U.S. where they say that they will grant GDPR-like rights to to all U.S. residents, for example. Um, and and it is very difficult when you're trying to create a program for an uh, organization to create something that you can functionally implement if there are too many too many exceptions to the general rules. Uh, and I think that's where these you know bigger industry players come come from in terms of of their compliance programs, right? They have invested in, in, in GDPR and now they wanna just kind of make sure that that is the one investment that, that they can, you know, roll out globally. And, and CCPA is a little, a little different from, from GDPR in some ways. Um, but in terms of opt-ins and opt-outs, which is so often where the conversation goes with privacy, I just don't find it useful to think about things in terms of opt-ins and opt-outs because what are you opting in or out of, right? And, and, and what are your, how accessible are those opt-ins and opt-outs? I think that is the more, the more relevant question. Um, do you have real choice, going back to what Alan was, was saying before? Um, so, Alan, what do you think? You're also in California, so we're, we're starting to see, like, I... You know, I go to Panda Express and there's a CCPA notice there. I don't know that other people across the country are having the same experience, but we're really seeing it implemented here in a very, in a very interesting way. Yeah, and I think I think that's right. So you know, all the all the privacy laws, whether it's Europe, Brazil, or California, Virginia, um, they, they all sort of relate back to the FIPS, the Fair Information uh, Practice Principles. Transparency, accountability, choice, information protection, and information review and access, and they they kind of come about it somewhat differently. Yeah. But those those concepts you can build a program around. Choice, however, is is the is the one where it, it you know reasonable minds can differ as to what that means. Right? The rest are all more or less um, uh, uh, not uh, that controversial. Uh, but you know what? What type of choice uh, under what circumstances um, is, is where where 
jurisdiction very greatly. And, uh, and you know, we're having a, a you know, a, a debate here in the United States, you know, what level of, of consent or choice uh, is appropriate for uh, things like passive information collection by tracking technology, under what circumstances and for what and for what uses, um, uh, and uh, you know, looking just at CCPA and this concept of sale, some muddled uh, when it comes to to digital advertising uh, and cookies. That that the most recent ballot initiative, the CPRA, you know, attempted uh, to resolve that. Uh, I don't think it will really at all. Um, uh, and uh, you've got um, advertising industry leading self-regulatory organizations with completely um, different uh, compliance frameworks. Um, we can talk a little bit more about that, but that's really where um, the, 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 the interesting uh, issues are. Uh, security, not really that controversial, right? You know, um, you know, maybe you can argue what is reasonable security under particular circumstances with respect to particular data, but it's more or less been resolved. Um, you can argue about whether or not there ought to be a private right of action uh, or whether or not you need an economic injury to have standing to, to, to bring a case if your personal information is compromised. Um, but but the, the, the concept of, of, of choice on, of, with respect to the election and processing and, uh, and downstream uh, disclosure of your personal information is, is a much tougher public policy issue uh, and one that's yet to be resolved uh, here or even in Europe. Well, let's shift. I was, I was going to say one thing before we move on, which sure. is a slight difference that I, I, I see from what Alan just mentioned. And I think, I mean, I think that is, that is right, but the Europeans, they never, you know, data protection law has never been about choice. It has always been about purpose and purpose limitation. That's the core of GDPR. That was the core of the directive, this idea that there's lawful basis for processing. And those are purpose driven. And if you are outside, you just cannot process, right? And I think that that is something that actually it's also happening now here with CCPA and CPRA that we're importing is just not choice, it's also purpose, right? Like, is this a business purpose? And if it, this is a business purpose, fine, you can do it. But if it is not a business purpose, if you're monetizing data in a different way, then maybe, maybe, you know, the consumer should know about it and the consumer should benefit about uh by, by that monetization and they, they should have some form of share in that in that world that is created through their data um, and I don't think that that was here before and I don't think that is in FIPS necessarily and I, I think that's the paradigm uh, shift that we are really seeing with CCPA and CPRA in the U.S. Interesting. Well, as as Alan said, these debates are still being worked out in some key areas and and what you just said clearly confirms that. Um, so let me shift to the f American federal level. We have things going around in the states. Europe has acted, many of the states have acted, and everybody is now looking to the Hill in DC. And we're all waiting to see if we're going to get a federal bill passed. 
the conventional wisdom is that the key hangups are preemption of state laws. Will the federal law be sort of the one to rule them all in America? And then a private right of action. Can private individuals sue for breaches of the law and which aspects of the law uh, can, they, can they sue for? Um, what is your read of the federal situation of the landscape there? Uh, is there anything you'd like to point out that you'd like to see from that law? And uh, what do you think the chances are that we will actually get a comprehensive federal privacy law uh, this Congress or this century? <laughs> so I, I would say, I mean, uh, we're just now pulling our crystal balls. and <laughs> Yes, <laughs> and yes, we, very true. <laughs> but, but this is my perspective. Um, I don't think we're going to see a privacy law enacted this year. And I don't know that we will see it next year at the federal level. I, I still think that there's a lot of room for evolution at the state level. And that's where you should keep an eye uh, right now, because there's, there's fundamentally three tracks um, taking place, playing out at the state level right now. And you have, you know, the CCPA, CPRA kind of track where it was, it was really effective in terms of activism with um, Californians for Consumer Privacy in California. And in, you know, arguably one of the most liberal states in the nation, um, you wouldn't have seen an enactment of CCP or CPRA absent activism in California. But that has kind of set things in motion and you're starting to see some of the bills being shaped around the concepts that were created by CCP and CPRA. The, the one state that demonstrates that is Washington. After CCPA was enacted in 2018, 2019, and 2020, we saw industry proposals for laws that were really more like GDPR, like had this controller and processor vocabulary and, 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 and were trying to shape a different path to a federal law through enactment of a competitive framework at a different state. And, and they actually have been evolving. So if you look at 2019 and 2020, they start to look more and more like CCPA and CPRA and a bit less like the European framework. That failed in Washington. Um, the effort of the, um, that was led by industry to, to enact something in Washington failed because it was opposed by, by activists. But what we are seeing right now in 2021 is that that track has moved beyond Washington. So we look at Virginia, which just recently enacted a very Washington-like privacy law. And there's a number of other states where that, that kind of law is being proposed. And then the third track is a track that do you, you get the CPRA, you have the, the industry. And then you have a third track that, you know, has a, a, a whole different set of, of um, ideas, like this idea of um, uh, data fiduciary that is being proposed in New York, um, that, that is kind of, you know, new. And they haven't really seen, that track has not really seen a successful enactment. They, they, we, we, we've seen proposals, but we have not seen a successful enactment. 
um, my bet in terms of what we will see in Washington is that whatever we, from these three options, whatever wins the race at the state level, when we see more enactments, is ultimately what we're going to see in Washington because, you know, once California has gone CPRA and now Florida is considering a bill that is very CPRA-like, if Florida enacts something that's very similar to California, it's going to be really, really hard for Washington to go in any other different direction, right? So I think the competition for what we will see at the federal level is really playing out right now at the state level. And this is, I think, traditionally how, um, you know, we have enacted new frameworks in the U.S. So if you want to know what we will see in Washington, keep an eye on what's going on at the state level right now. And I would add that what will probably drive uh, federal legislation is if if these state laws do start to diverge too much, such that it, that it becomes too, they're too granular uh, and, the, and the compliance obligations are too different, uh, such that it becomes just not practical for, for businesses. Uh, or if you have one state that just goes a little too far, uh, such as providing a really broad private right of action. And, and I think we have an example of, of that um, that we don't have to look back too far to see, and that would be uh, the regulation of, of emails and email marketing, uh, where you had a hodgepodge of state laws, you had a very, very restrictive California law, uh, and Congress stepped in, uh, created the, the Federal Can Spam Act, um, uh, much in the way that GDPR was intended to level down the, the more restrictive um, member state uh, interpretations of, of privacy directive and level up the, the, the weaker ones um, and try to create a, 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 an EU-wide standard that was more uniform. And SPAM created a federal uh, a system for email marketing, uh, transparency, and, and choice. Uh, and preempted all state laws to the contrary, uh, except to the extent that they regulated fraud and deception. Uh, and I think that that's probably where we will end up, um, uh, unless, as Lydia suggested, uh, California, uh, you know, basically is the de facto standard, and and all the other states um, uh, just follow on with copycat legislation. But you you get a, you get you get a couple other novel uh, uh, bills out there, uh, and it just—it's just not uh, possible for, for industry to really regulate in that kind of uh, environment. Uh, also, I think that Congress might step in uh, to solve some some of the issues with um, with with the over granularity of of the way these laws are developing. And how many different opt-out uh, links are companies going to have to have on their websites. You know, do not sell, do not share, um, opt out of uh, use of uh, my sensitive personal information. Uh, it it's, loses the, the, the goal of creating uh, uh, useful um, uh, uh, ability of consumers to exercise control over their own data. Okay. Well, thank you both so much. You've covered so much ground. Um, this has been really informative. 
Alan, you were uh, mentioning where the legal landscape is probably headed. I want in closing to just go to the 10,000 foot level and talk about where maybe things are heading at the really uh, philosophical, cultural, societal level. You know, where do you see data and privacy going as a value? Um, you know, Alan, you pointed at one little data point of, of Google cutting off the use of cookies on its um, on its browsers. Um, but even at a broader level, uh, do you guys have thoughts on where we're headed and what we'll think about privacy 10 years from now or even further? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think if there's any uh, question that, that data is the new oil. Uh, you know, companies have realized that they have valuable digital assets. Uh, but at the same time, consumers uh, are, are coming to the conclusion that, that these are that these are assets that they ought to have a personal interest in because it's about them. Uh, and so you've got this conflict between monetization and purpose limitation, consumer control. Uh, and and that, that's a debate that will be ongoing. And I think really it, it's, it's better for industry to solve it than it is for the government to solve it. Uh, and there are models uh, that, that support transparency and choice. But what we've seen is that industry didn't do a very good job of that. And as a result, uh, we're now seeing this legislation. Um, and, 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 it's, and, and although it's well-intended, um, it, it, it's, it's gone away from broad concepts and principles um, to very, very specific uh, do's and don'ts. Those, we're already seeing that that, that doesn't work well. Um, and, and so what we're, what we'll see is an evolution uh, or a maturing uh, of uh, data uh, as it relates to personal information here in the U.S. And uh, that's that's a story that that's unfinished. Industry is not monolithic, right? Like we're thinking you were giving examples of very, very, um, you know, major companies um, like Apple or Google. They, they do not react to the U.S. only, they are present everywhere. I think that the moves that they are making reflect that pressure. And also their choice as how they, you know, they want to be seen as brands. But going to, you know, this idea of choice, um, I will say that, you know, one way to look at this is, um, you know, consumers used to have notice and choice. Now industry also has a choice, right? So you don't want to have three opt-out links on your site? Well, don't sell data, and then you don't have to offer that opt-out. Or, you know, don't share data for cross-context advertising if you do not want to have to offer that opt-out to your consumers, right? So the from my perspective, really, what, what we're seeing is a leveling of the playing field where more power, more rights are now here in California granted on consumers and an industry has to adapt. But um, to my point that industry is not monolithic, there is a lot of medium-sized and small-sized uh, businesses that might have to contend with these new rules in California that perhaps never were exposed to, you know, the rules that apply globally. And I think that there is a lot of space there for actual, you know, education and support of those organizations in terms of 
helping them understand um, the new requirements and think through their choices that they now have, right? If they do not want to have to offer an out-of-sale, then maybe there are some activities that they were engaged in that they might have to stop. Um, and I hope that that's what we that that's one of the things that we see in the future at this here locally in California. Well, Lydia, thank you. And I'm so excited to, to watch your progress on the California Privacy Protection Agency. And Alan, thank you so much for coming on. Alan, again, a partner at Squire Patent Boggs. I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.